For the benefit of those who might be with us for the first time today, my name is Josh Hughes. I'm one of the pastors here. It is truly a joy to gather as God's people. It's a joy and a privilege for us to worship together, to rehearse the good news of the gospel together through our songs, through the liturgy that we walk through every Sunday. And it is a privilege for us to consider what God's Word would say to us as well. And so if you have God's Word handy, whether it's in Bible form or on your technology, uh, go ahead and, if you would, open to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. Typically at Four Oaks, it is our practice to start a new sermon series with chapter 1 and verse 1 of a book of the Bible and then spend however long we need to spend working our way through that book of the Bible piece by piece and chunk by chunk. That's how we like it. That's typically how we roll at Four Oaks. But on occasion, we will pivot from that form and we will spend a few weeks thinking together about what the whole counsel of God's Word says about a particular theme or a particular topic. And that's what we're doing for the rest of the month of June and all of the month of July. We're going to be doing, uh, doing work in the text around the theme of rhythms. That's the name of our sermon series that we're launching today. And what we want to do in this series is to think about our work and to think about our rest, to think about how it is that we are called to strive in our work, and by work I mean whatever God has assigned you to do. So whether you're the CEO of a company or a stay-at-home mom or a student or a retiree or whatever the case might be, God has assigned us and called us to be at work. And so how do we strive and labor in that work while at the same time living in and enjoying the rest that God has created for us as His people? And so to kick off that series, to launch us into our consideration of these topics I want us to go back to the creation account to see what we can learn about God's original design for our work. So let's read together from Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. We're going to read all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. This is God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man, in, the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Syria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our God, we need your words. We need your truth to be written upon our hearts. We need you to give us the gift of illumination. We want to understand the way in which you've designed the world to work so that we might live in it according to your design, so that we might enjoy it and enjoy you as we enjoy it. So please open up our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, visit us and give us understanding because we've come eager, seeking your truth. So write it on our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. David Foster Wallace told a parable that I really, really love. And the parable goes like this. Two young fish are swimming along one day. And they encounter an older fish swimming the other direction who says to the two young fish, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish continue swimming on for a while until eventually one young fish looks at his companion and says, What the heck is water? And the point of the story is this. Sometimes the most obvious, most important realities, the heaviest realities of life are the ones that are the most difficult to perceive and to understand. So why is it that we're spending eight weeks studying the doctrine of work and rest? Well, it's an obvious thing in our lives. We spend a lot of time working and we spend a lot of time resting. It's an important, critical part of the life that we live. But here's the thing. We are trash terrible at it, aren't we? Can we just be honest for a second? I know, I know it's church, but can we be honest for just a minute? We are not doing this well. We are far too busy, far too tired, far too worn out to be doing this working and resting thing according to God's design. Tim Kreider uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a couple years ago called The Busy Trap. And here's what he said. Almost everyone I know is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or doing something to promote their work. I recently wrote a friend to ask if he wanted to do something this week, and he answered that he didn't have a lot of time, but if something was going on, to let him know, and maybe he could ditch work for a few hours. I wanted to clarify that my question had not been a preliminary heads up to some future invitation. 
This was the invitation. But his busyness, I love this, was like some vast churning noise through which he was shouting at me. And I gave up trying to shout back over it. Are you tired of that vast churning noise of busyness in your life? Are you weary of being exhausted and overscheduled and stressed out and pressured by all the things you need to get done? Am I the only person that's experiencing this? Well, it's summer. Good news. Maybe you're just like, oh, it's the summer, and now it's like vacation time. I can unplug. I can rest. How many of us are longing for a chance to get away and just spend a week at the beach, or spend a week in the mountains, or spending a week at our favorite theme park? Because that's definitely restful, right? <laughs> How many of you are just thinking in your hearts, man, if I could just get away and have some time with my kids, or maybe, it, maybe it's if I could just get away from my kids. My wife laughed really hard at that one. We can relate to that. How do we get here? How do we end up in this place where we're just so busy all the time? Why is it that the cultural sort of anthem and mantra of our day is, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy? How do we get here? Well, I think there's a, there's a deep fundamental question that that speaks to. And it's a question of our identity. And a misunderstanding of where our identity comes from. You know, we live in an interesting cultural moment. For most of human history, many centuries, uh, you could go back and you can see that this is true. Your identity was something that was passed down to you. It was something that you received from your relationships. The time and place that you were born. The community around you. The social environment that you were born into. So for if you were born a farmer in Eastern Europe in the 17th century, guess what you were most likely going to understand your identity to be? I'm going to be an Eastern European farmer. It was handed down to you by our cultural environment. But now, in the midst of our connected world where everybody can be anything they want to be, right? Because you're a beautiful, special snowflake who can accomplish whatever you put your mind to, right? In our world, your identity isn't something that's passed down to you. It's something that you work to achieve, It's something that you earn. It's something that you accomplish by virtue of your resume. And this this cultural pressure to achieve, to work for an identity, that's that's why you get up and you work your soul off. You rise up early and you grind because you've got to make a name for yourself. You've got to be somebody. And all the time you've got got one eye on your work and you've got one eye on the guy down the hall from you to see what he's doing. What, what sort of work is he doing? Is he, is he progressing up the corporate ladder quicker than me? Is the boss going to him more than he's coming to me? It's the reason you can't fathom a world where you don't check your phone 137 times at night. Because what if the boss needs something? What if there's some action and I'm not a part of it? So why some of you moms live with that sort of low-grade, persistent feeling of guilt all the time your house isn't as Pinterested up as the houses that you see on social media. You look at that endless list of, uh, of meal planning and, and, and family calendaring, and it just seems endless. You look at that pile of laundry that it seems like no matter how hard you work, no matter how many hours you put into it, it never seems to go down. You can't fathom 
a world in which you have a day every week where you set all of that aside to just rest and to just be who God's made you to be. Why do we need this series? I'm afraid that many of us have settled for a subhuman existence, an existence that falls way short of what God designed for us and the identity that Christ has given to us. We need the series because we need to work and rest better. And here's the thing. We're not going to work and rest better simply by finding better methods. We're not going to get there simply by finding ways to improve ourselves. And we're not going to work and rest better just by virtue of getting that week at the beach. Now, the work and rest that we long for will only come when we drink deeply from and are able to live out of the identity that's been secured for us in Jesus Christ. The big idea of this series is that healthy rhythms will only be present in our lives when we're working out of the rest that's ours in Jesus Christ, when we're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to begin with God's design for work. The message title is The Creation of Work. And the big idea is just very simple. The big idea this morning is work is good. There's a temptation for us because of all the hardships, because of how difficult work is, because of the thorns and thistles that attend everything that our hand seeks to do, to think that work is just bad. We just need to avoid it. We just need to get away from it. We need to find what uh, Aristotle talked about. A meaningful life is one where you're unemployed, where you can live a life free from work. And what I want us to see in the text this morning is that's, that's the wrong way to approach it because work is good. Work isn't the problem. We're the problem. Two perspectives on work from the creation account will be our two points this morning. First point is the good work of God. And the second is the good work of man. So first, the good work of God. From the very first pages of the Bible, we see that God is at work. God is sitting down at his desk. He is entering his workshop. He's rolling up his sleeves and he is beginning his work. And that work doesn't end with the creation of the world. That work continues throughout the pages of this book. And we could think of the work of God in human history in sort of three movements. And there'll be our three subpoints under the first point of the work, good work of God. The good work of God is, consists in creation first, then redemption, and then recreation. Creation, redemption, recreation are the three movements of the work of God. First, creation. It's so interesting that Scripture calls God's creative activity work. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. In creation. And this word for work in the original language, it's not ordinary commonplace work, it's skilled work, like the work of a craftsman or an artisan. And it's no wonder that in, in Genesis chapter 131, God sees everything that he has made and he declares that it is not just good, it is very good. And the creation account in Genesis is unique to, uh, to ancient cultural explanations for why the world exists. Uh, many uh, primitive cultures believe that the world exists and, hum- and humanity is here because it's the result of a battle that took place between cosmic forces. And what the Genesis narrative 
communicates to us is something much more simple and much more beautiful in a way. The creation exists because of the good work of God. Tim Keller says, Creation, then, is not the aftermath of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior digs a trench, but as an artist makes a masterpiece. The good work of God. God creates the world, then he creates man and places him in the garden. And look at what he says to the man when he places him in the garden. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love this. God makes man, places him in the garden, and says, look at that tree. Isn't it pleasant to the sight? Here's a question for you. When was the last time you considered how pleasing a tree was to look at? When was the last time you just allowed yourself to receive as if in a fresh way for the first time how incredible God's creation is? It's funny, I thought about this. Uh, we, back in January, we had an elder retreat and we met at Tom Thacker's house. And during a break in one of our discussions, a few of us went out on the back porch and we were looking out over Tom's backyard and he has this beautiful oak tree right off of his back porch. It's clearly very mature. It's been there for decades. It's got beautiful, intricate bark around the outside of it. It makes this giant, beautiful canopy of shade. Branches are just going everywhere. And a group of a handful of us just, just sat there for about five minutes and just looked at it. I said, that is just a beautiful tree. It's pleasant to the sight. God creates nature to be pleasant to the sight, and he creates it to be good for food. Amen. How good is that? Isn't it wonderful that God didn't just make food that we eat only to sustain our lives, but he made it to be delicious? Have you thought about what a good gift that is from God? When you eat a perfectly cooked steak, and by perfectly cooked, of course, I mean rare. When you drink a good glass of wine, when you eat a really good piece of chocolate or or drink a really good cup of coffee. That's meant to remind us that God is a creator who does all things well, and he gives us good gifts in creation so that we can first receive it with thanksgiving and second, turn our attention to the good giver who made it for us and gave it to us to enjoy. Can I just encourage us? Could we just all resolve right now, over the course of this summer, could we just take some time to enjoy God's good work and creation? Could we stop from our busyness just to receive the gift of God's creation with thanksgiving? Maybe it just means staring at a tree for a little while or enjoying a beautiful sunset or a good meal with long, slow conversation with people that you love or the way the Gulf of Mexico feels when it hits your body when you throw yourself into it on a hot summer day or the way a Frosty glass of lemonade tastes right after you've mowed the grass. Could we do that this summer? The work of God in creation is good. It's good. But God's work isn't over when creation is done. We all know what's going to happen once we get through Genesis 2. We're going to get to Genesis 3, right? And something terrible is going to happen. Sin is going to enter the world And we'll talk more about that next week, the way sin gets into everything. It gets gets into our enjoyment of everything. It gets into the work that we do. But we'll save that for next week. But for now, I just want you to notice this. 
You know this if you've read your Bible at all. When sin enters the world, when man rebels against God's good design, when they take his clear instructions in chapter 2 and say, no thank you, I know best, God doesn't leave us to our own devices. He doesn't leave us to simply receive the outcome of our rebellion against him. No, instead of doing that, which he would have been totally just to do, God continues his work in doing the work of redemption. Second movement of God's work. God sends Jesus to come, and when Jesus comes on the scene, he's got his work boots on, right? John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And what's the work that Jesus is doing? He's doing the work of redemption. In a world where everything has gone sideways, when men and women are helpless, dead in their blindness and their trespasses and sins, Jesus comes to do a redeeming work. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus comes to redeem us from all of the works of our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And all who trust in Him, all who look to His redeeming work as their salvation, as their hope, as their righteousness, have their sins forgiven. He redeems us from the curse of the law against our sin. It's why we have hope today. Because the work of Jesus Christ is a finished work. If you're struggling with condemnation today, Maybe you're, for a long time in my life, I felt like I understood that, that Jesus loved people generally, but I, I wasn't sure he could actually love me personally. Maybe you can relate to that. I used to think, man, my sin, it, my sin's bad. Like, other people sin, but like, my sin is really bad. Jesus, like, I gotta add some stuff here, or the, I'm sure that like, there's a part that you do, but I gotta meet you halfway, or 20%, or whatever. When you believe that, you just live under the weight of guilt and condemnation. And Jesus came to redeem you from that. He came to do that through His good work of redemption. And while that work is fully done, it's fully accomplished, we haven't yet realized the fullness of the outcome of that work. Which is why we need the last movement of God's work, and that's His work of recreation. Recreation. Philippians chapter 3 is one of my favorite Texts in the Bible, Paul says, beginning in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Though we live here, our citizenship, our home, our country of origin is actually in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The way the King James Version translates the second half of that verse, it says, he will do this work of transformation according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Jesus is at work, and one day that work will be gloriously on display when he splits the sky, when he returns to set right all that sin and man's rebellion has set wrong. We sang it this morning. I love that song, New Again. The fallen will rise. The weak will be strong as death turns to life in our Savior's arms. That's where all of human history is moving. It's moving toward restoration, complete renewal, and resurrection. I love 
Revelation 21, the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. It's a picture of where all of this is going. So did you come in today with some, some pain? With some open loops? Did you come in today just stinging from the loss of your spouse, the loss of a child, maybe a child who's turned away from the teaching that you gave them in their youth and has wandered away from the Lord. Maybe you just feel like you're sitting in a, in a, in, in a pile of the shattered remains of your dreams for your life. Here's the good news. There is hope for us today because Jesus is at work and he is doing a work of recreation. So we can rejoice. We can take heart. We can be comforted in the midst of our hardship knowing that it's true. The work of God is a good work. I love what William Temple says about the work of God. He says, creation, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, consummation. What do they all have in common? God has his hands in the dirt. His hands are in the dirt so that he can work for himself glory and for us everlasting joy. The work of God's good. But the work of man is good also. That's our second point. As soon as God is on the scene, he's working. And the same is true of man. As soon as man arrives on the scene, God gives him an assignment to work and tend God's creation. And just notice this. uh, Where does this fall in relationship to Genesis chapter 3 and the coming of sin to the world? It's before, right? So work is not some outcome of sin in the world. It's not some thing that we have to deal with as a result of the fall. It's something that we were designed for. From the very beginning, at least chronologically speaking, you and I are workers even before we're sinners. Have you ever thought about that? There are three aspects to the good work of man, three, three ends to which we work. We work to bear the image of God, we work to build culture, and we work to bless others. Those are our three subpoints under the second point. We work to bear God's image, to build culture, and to bless others. So we work to bear the image of God. Chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? What's that mean? 
Well, we know a little bit of what it means as we continue to read in Genesis in chapter 5, verse 3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Those are the same words there for image and likeness as we saw in Genesis 1, 26. And so what he's saying, something we can infer from that is that we bear the image of God in the same way that a son bears the image of his father. And so we have a great illustration of that right here. My dad is sitting right there. Can you stand up? That's my dad right there. And this is me right here. Do you see? What a great illustration this is. So stand back up. Stand back. I'm not done. So you see the epic beard? You, you can't see it right now, but the guitar skills, most of all the, the male pattern baldness, I bear your image, Dad. See, when you look at me, you get a sense of what he looks like. Even before he stood up, if you've never met him before, looking at me, you can know what he... Okay, you can sit back down. You can sit back down. <laughs> we bear the image of God in the same way that a son bears the image of his father. And God is a worker. And as his image bears, he commissions us to work on his behalf. Look at what Genesis 2.15 says. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And if that's, if that's true, if we are designed to bear God's image specifically by working, if that's true, then that means that work is not a curse to be avoided. Work is an essential part of what it means for us to be human. It's part of what it means for us to bear the image of God. And if that's true, then that means that all work and all kinds of work have dignity and value. There's no such thing as a, as a sacred, secular divide. We think of like certain types of work as like holy unto the Lord, like the work of ministry, and then there's, the, there's just what we do to pay the bills. It's the same sort of mindset that makes us think there's certain types of work that are more valuable to society than others. There's a common temptation for us, many of us have have probably even given way to this at times, to think there are certain types of work that are beneath us or somehow lesser. So things like manual labor or the service industry are prime examples of jobs that people tend to think of as being beneath a person who's educated or wise or who has skills. But check this out. What do we see God doing in Genesis 1 and 2? He's doing manual labor. He's got his hands in the dirt. He's gardening, landscaping. And as if that weren't enough, what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? What's his job? What's his vocation? He's a carpenter. All work, if it's done well, if it's done skillfully, if it's done heartily as unto the Lord, has dignity and value. We've got to keep that in our minds. We have to understand that that's true because we bear the image of God. We don't just work to bear the image of God. We also work for the purpose of building culture. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And He goes on to give instruction about the plants and the creeping things. Not the creepy things, the creeping things. Creation was, was fundamentally good when God made it, but at the same time, it was, it was raw. It was a blank slate. Creation, as God gave it and entrusted it to man, had massive 
potential. But that potential at that time was unrealized. It needed to be unlocked and released through man's dominion taking and culture making. Theologians call Genesis 128 the cultural mandate. The mandate from God to man to take the raw materials of creation and then channel them, use them to create and to bring about flourishing. So in the creation mandate, God says more than just have babies. Fruitful and multiply, it means more than just procreation. But it means build families. It means make art. It means build companies. It means invent new technologies. Build new systems of government. Build infrastructure. Invent things that will make people's lives better and build cities. This is the work that's been entrusted to man by God to take what he created as good and to build with it and to cultivate with it. I've heard this said before. I don't, I don't know where it originates, but I think it's a very interesting observation. It's noteworthy to us that the Bible begins with a garden and ends with what? A city. We read it a moment ago in, in Revelation chapter 21. The Bible begins with a garden and ends with a city. And how does a piece of land go from garden to city through the work of cultivation. And that's the work that God does through us in the world that he made as good. So there are, I was thinking about this yesterday. There are all sorts of ways that people in this church are making and building culture through their vocations. So we have, I get to work a lot with um, some of the designers, the visual designers in our church. So David Freeland, J. Johansson, Ben Young, these are men who, for their vocation, they take the raw materials of, of pixels and colors and, and shapes and, and design concepts, and they use them to make something beautiful. They put them together so that you can have something that's visually pleasing to you. They make typesettings and layouts that are enjoyable for you to read, and pictures that evoke emotion. They're doing a work of cultivation. The architect who designed this building is, is my friend Richard Crow, And Richard, as an architect, has this, has this great skill of, of taking the characteristics and the values of your organization and helping you think through what that means and then representing them in a space in a way that evokes a, the feeling of, of that organization and what he makes. He takes these raw materials and he works with them to make culture. Uh, my friend Rachel Boltman works... Uh, as uh, she works in operating rooms, and what she does is she teaches surgeons how to use technology, how to use uh, new procedures and new surgical tools. And through her efforts, your surgery recovery time gets shorter, your incisions get smaller. It's bringing about human flourishing, and all of this is building culture. This is what we're called to do in our labors. There are hundreds more examples, but we can see this work is good when we use it to build and to cultivate, to take the, the raw materials of what God has made and use it to bring blessing and flourishing. Which leads us to our third aspect, our third purpose in our work. We work to bless others. We know that part of bearing the image of God means that we are created for community. God is a, is, a, is a communal God. He exists eternally in perfect fellowship in the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in the same way, we were made to live in community. And so in 2.15, or 2.18, excuse me, God makes Eve and he presents her to 
to Adam so that they can work together, so that they can have companionship, so that they can partner in ministry and bless one another and bless the world. And this is really important for us to understand. We're in, a, we're in an individualistic culture, and we like to think of our relationship with God as a privatized sort of thing. It's about Jesus and me. That's never the way God's designed for us to live our lives. We are made to be present to others and to seek their good. Let me make this connection here. You know, at the beginning of our time, we talked about how every one of us feels this immense pressure to earn a name for ourselves, to achieve an identity. And if we give in to that temptation as Christians, what that betrays is that we really have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the most important text in all the New Testament in our understanding of what God does for us in Jesus Christ. It says, For our sake, He, that's God, made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what we need to see in that is that there's something accomplished for us in the cross of Jesus beyond the forgiveness of our sins. If you ask Ten Christians from, even from this church, what does Jesus die to give you? They will say forgiveness. And that is true. Yes and amen, he dies to give us forgiveness. But he also dies to give us something more than that. And what is it? Righteousness. He dies to give us his righteousness. This is what theologians call double imputation. When Jesus dies on the cross, God takes all the sin that you've racked up in your life, for all the times you have failed him, for all the times you've acted selfishly, for all the times you have rebelled against his purposes and sought your own way. He takes all of that sin, he takes that resume of failure, and he deposits it in Jesus' account. And he puts it on his resume, and he judges him in your place. But then he does something else, and this is so good. He takes Jesus' perfect resume of righteousness. A life lived in complete submission to God. A life in which he fulfilled every jot and tittle of God's law. And he takes that perfect record, that perfect resume, and he deposits it in your account. He puts it on your resume. And here's the crazy thing about this, the mind-blowing thing about this. When you have a perfect resume, there's nothing you can do to improve it. Here's what I want you to see. By your obedience, by your work, you cannot add a single iota to your resume before God. You cannot improve your standing with him one bit because he's already given you everything in Christ. He's given you a righteousness that you could not earn for yourself by grace through faith. And here's how that relates to blessing others. When you have God's favor, when you have a perfect resume, you are released from the tyranny of trying to earn it. So you don't have to work to build an identity for yourself anymore. You can tap out of that rat race where you try to be good enough, where you try to earn some sort of standing, where you just try to make a name for yourself before the Lord. And you're freed to aim your work toward a different end. That's to bless other people. Oh, how much would it change 
your work, and your rest. If you were to drink deeply from that gospel truth that you cannot add to your standing before God through your efforts. How much more deeply would you love other people? How much more deeply would I love other people if I really believed that? Here's what Martin Luther says about this in the book, Freedom of the Christian. Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure free grace, so that from now on I need nothing, nothing except faith which believes that it is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will, give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. It was true of Martin Luther, and you better believe, Christian, it's true of you too. That's the gospel identity that we need to free us, to restore sanity to our rhythms of work and rest. Guys, do you realize if you're in Christ, you can breathe. The pressure is off. Jesus has done all the earning that was necessary. Isn't that great news? You have nothing to pay back. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to achieve by your work. And you are free today, this moment, to live in the good of what he accomplished for you. You're going to continue to think about what that means as we continue to make our way through this series. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Would you pray with me?